Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the pro-vaccination podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 21st, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, who for this episode will be faking an English accent and changing one of his names to Nicholas, is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor from the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we are pleased to welcome Lydia Nicholas. Uh, Lydia has an MSc in Digital Anthropology and wrote her thesis on public understanding of big data and data collection practices. She's a senior researcher at Nesta, a nonprofit that describes itself as an innovation foundation in the UK. Uh, she works on their collective intelligence team, exploring new forms of knowledge production and problem solving that are emerging from the collaboration of networked publics, institutions, and organizations. Of particular interest to us is that she focuses on places where data identities, bodies, and biotechnologies meet. A great pleasure to welcome you to the pod, Lydia. It's a pleasure to be here. You did a wonderful DOTS talk in 2016 and talked about data and information technologies and the impact on those perhaps less used to the digital space, those who are vulnerable, those are not who are not digitally native. And you kind of tied that into uh, the UK uh, Brexit uh, issue and, and how I think you, you said something like neighbors just didn't know what their neighbors were thinking because even though they were neighbors they were they were tied into different sort of digital bunkers and i think we have experienced a similar issue here in the united states with regard to healthcare uh, which became perhaps one of the big deciding issues in our last election and i i wonder if you could expand a little bit on on how you see uh, those different patterns and a lot of what you were talking about is how we as perhaps technocrats and also the data systems we use tend to be oblivious or can be oblivious to some of those different values and, and different persons. What I discussed in that talk was something that, I mean, was at the time very, very raw for us in the UK. And I understand is it's absolutely uh, also a, a hot topic over there, um, which is the issue of filter bubbles and filter bunkers, really. It, it feels that these aren't things that we can easily pop uh, which was essentially about the fact that, uh, as is common knowledge generally, or feels like it's common knowledge, uh, pretty much all of the information that we access online comes through algorithmic filters. Uh, so obviously the Facebook news feed is carefully curated um, and your Google search changes according to all the different things that Google knows about you, um, even the different ways that you might see you know, products, services or news stories ranked in the various different platforms that you'll engage with will be different depending on what the owners of the platform know about you. Uh, and one of the issues that that produces, of course, that it's, it's very hard to have a nuanced debate because you are accessing uh, more and more different siloed knowledge uh, and may end up with a completely different evidence base on which you're building your arguments and your understanding of the world than your neighbour. Uh, and although there's been a lot of talk about fake news, I actually think that that isn't as big a problem as tailored news. You can have um, entirely accurate facts that are dug out um, or are dug out of the deep recesses of the past or are um, are tweaked and and presented in particular kind of ways 
you know, like there's a lot that's talking about uh, at the moment about Sweden and uh, its rape statistics and the fact that they report it very, very differently than, say, the US and the UK do, which means that stats cannot really be compared in a simplistic way. Um, and so that's driving a lot of stories at the moment that can be, you know, you can you can present facts that are actual verified statistics and not explain the mechanisms that are going on behind them. Uh, and so present a very different argument than someone who's using the exact same facts and presenting them in a different way. So we end up with a system where a lot of people that are trying to have the public debate that is the foundation of democracy, where you, you reach compromises, you, you express empathy towards other people, you try and work out what other people's experience of the world is and, and how you're going to build a world together. That becomes impossible because you're both experiencing different worlds. And some of us understand that that is happening and can make efforts to correct for it, um, although we often don't. So I know that Facebook newsfeed is tailored in certain ways. So I try and, when I use it, switch to the you know the latest first version. So you, you can do that manually and then it always tries to switch you back to its algorithmically sort of its preferential one. And that just shows me a random selection of all of my friends. And some of them have views that I don't really agree with, but I'm glad that I see them, even if I don't then click like on them, because I begin to understand that there are other ways of seeing the world than the one that I like, both literally and with the like button, and that I keep seeing regurgitated. But a lot of people don't understand that. It's quite a complicated technology, quite a tech complicated process. It is deliberately obscured by Google, by Facebook. They might say that you've given consent, but it's very difficult to understand what that actually means when a lot of people's understanding of statistics and data and filtering and these processes is very, very basic if existent at all. In terms of the analysis of these news feeds and their opacity, I think that is so insightful. And I'm going to tie that back into the health data context in just a bit, but I just want to get in one idea here about the problem of the filter bubble concept, because my worry is that we, we often hear that the problem right now online with these news feeds and other sources of information is that we just live in a bubble and that we need to expand our bubble. But the worry I have normatively about this is that I imagine that there are people out there, some of whom are quite reflective, want to adhere to enlightenment values, who would hear the filter bubble critique and say, yes, I really should open my feed to, say, people from the far right or people who have, you know, very <laughs> different opinions to mine. And one wonders exactly how open the people with other political predilections will be to the filter bubble argument. And if it's the case that there's an asymmetric polarization to the point where the people who are most willing to entertain the filter bubble hypothesis and to invite the viewpoints of others in are different politically from those who just ignore it, I worry about that. And I think that this this issue in terms of like data representativeness and data um, quality that you know Rob Kitchen's work and so many other really interesting data theorists work have focused on it comes up in healthcare as well not in terms of an, any ideological slant but in terms of as Sharona call, Hoffman calls it big bad data the worry that you know somehow the data that we're getting in the healthcare context is non-representative or is you know being plucked to tell a certain story that isn't the whole story. Is, is that a concern that comes up at all in digital anthropology or, or health data policy in the UK and Europe? Absolutely, yes. One of the kind of key examples that I often draw on and I know might be familiar to some of your listeners is the example of Ambien. So women of childbearing age were excluded from, well, well they were virtually banned by all practical means from uh, clinical 
trials in the US between, I think, 1977 and 1993. And a lot of drugs were, of course, tested in that time. And, you know, women were reporting side effects, more side effects than had been found in those clinical trials. Uh, and this is a point where doctors can kind of can receive that information of people's lived and reported experience and say, well, I'm afraid that that isn't backed up in the data. So uh, that's that's you're, you're imagining it or there are other ways to manage it or it's from a different healthcare issue or you're not adhering correctly. And it was only much later, having done a series of further trials, that they realized that, in fact, women process the active ingredient of Ambien differently and should have been recommended about half of the dose that was the appropriate dose for men. So over you do have this issue of the fact that there is really no unbiased data um, and that even in the most well-meaning situation, you can create a, uh, a dynamic in which people's reported experience can can seem less real or less powerful than one that is backed up by data. Uh, the problem is that, of course, data will never be complete. Our, our kind of our understanding of the world through data is, is never going to be this exact and perfect representation. It's no more real than our own reports of our own experiences. Um, so there is an issue there about working out, can you fix that from a cultural point of view? Uh, how do you manage that power dynamic uh, in a way that means that doctors and patients can discuss experience, work with data and with patient expertise and experience? So, I mean, Nesta had a project a while ago looking at uh, group hospital appointments or group doctor appointments so that people with the same condition could talk to clinicians together which meant that they got more time and also people who had less confidence in reporting their own sort of experiences might learn from other people or they could build confidence and it could kind of break that cultural power dynamic of, you know, the, the doctor sitting there with their data and their reports uh, and the patient rushed in and a little confused and overwhelmed, struggling to articulate their needs and their experiences. So this is <laughs> not me saying that I don't think that data is fantastic. Obviously it is, um, but that the issue can be technical and cultural and that policy needs to engage with both. That example of the group doctor visit is so fascinating to me because the usual uh, big data line is to say, oh, sure, you know, in the past we had a partial uh, picture of the data but now N equals all. I think there was actually a talk at Harvard's Berkman Center that said, you know, with the advent of the smartphone, we could eventually be able to collect data from everybody on virtually everything. And what's such an interesting inversion of that idea, which is, is such a threat to privacy. I mean, I'm, and I want us to eventually talk, though, about its the positive side of all this big data. But I, I do think that the idea of the group appointment is such an interesting inversion of that because the idea is not let's have some centralized repository monitoring everybody and interpreting their data in the ways that the centralized repository wants to interpret it. But rather, let's bring together sufferers from a common condition and have them discuss their problems in their own terms with a doctor. Yeah, it's about balancing the clinician's expertise, the the power and the understanding that we get from data and from you know clinical knowledge and the day-to-day -day lived experience of patients whose issues may be very localized, maybe very personal, maybe related to cultural expectations or their own individual responsibilities and needs. So that's that's the kind of network or that we that we need to be always operating on. And anything that privileges one over the others in approach 
appropriately is, is potentially disastrous. The buzz phrase that we tend to hear with regard to the future of medicine here is personalization. And it's used in a couple of contexts. First, in the context of, uh, as you said, the, the, the phone, the, the, the mobile computer that we or computers that we, t- we carry around with us, collecting data about us very personally and being able to provide it to clinicians. And also in the context of big data, that if you collect enough data, you can actually personalize the information about the person sitting in front of the clinician. And both of those seem somewhat flawed or apply a different meaning to the word person or personhood than perhaps we're we're used to. Yeah, I think it's valuable to think about the idea of personalization within the wider context of how knowledge and power is produced in a healthcare context. Historically, maybe uh, you could say that health used to be the opposite of illness or sick rather was the opposite of health. You know, being sick meant not being able to do things that you wanted to do because you had some kind of trouble with your body. But kind of starting around sort of the turn of the 20th century, I think 1907, the British government was worried that the population was too unhealthy to produce enough recruits for the Boer War. So they started sending uh, regular health inspectors to schools to screen kids for disease, both kind of current and potential, and track their growth and mental development across against a population curve, which was really kind of the beginning of this surveillance health and risk society, where health was no longer kind of the opposite of feeling sick, but it was about failure to conform to this population curve. And your health existed in a kind of in a population context um, and was to be optimized for the productivity of the state. That is so dystopian. <laughs> you you check on the wellness of people so you can send them out to die in the Boer War. It's all, it's incredibly kind of Foucault, right? It's just the body as machine for productivity to be optimized for its output. But what that, that also means is that in that kind of society, when, you're, when your health is mapped on a population curve, you, you never get to be concretely and, and, and totally well. Your health is always contextual and expectations of healthiness change. And being at the wrong end of that can often be moralized. You know, if you end up being a high risk, uh, that can be moralised and punished. So in the UK, we've had discussions of charging people who smoke or are overweight for healthcare, something that was was pushed back against very strongly, but is in kind of the public consciousness. So you, you get there, as we kind of come closer to the present day, issues of health being something that is part of an incredibly complex statistical function that is quite hard to understand and quite hard to access, can be expensive to access. I mean, if I can't afford a 23andMe genetic screen or a Thriver blood test, Am I as healthy as someone who has accessed those and has checked that everything's okay? You know, I, I can't know that I'm as healthy as them. And a lot of the time we can't access those kind of analytics and that can be very alienating. So that's a, the kind of sphere in which if you have power, money, time and education around risk and statistics, you can end up being much more capable of operating within the system and getting what you want. You know, if, you're, if your healthcare system is datafied and you aren't familiar or you know, used to using data in any kind of personal way, it's very hard to make yourself understood to that system. Whereas if you can kind of come in with your tracking app, you can se- you can make yourself understood. So we, I think we see this in the US where patients already bring in, bringing in kind of patterns that have been found in not official trials, but in measurements on, on patients like me and taken that to their insurance companies to argue that treatment should be covered by their insurance. So if, if you can navigate that, you can access healthcare. In that, in that kind of case, personalized care is something that is quite worrying to me and that it can seem like offloading risk onto individuals as they need to to manage a lot of the process of, of accessing and, 
managing that care. So it's absolutely wonderful to have a personalized healthcare pathway that allows you to kind of recover from a stroke or get your diabetes managed in, in ways that suit you and your life. But I think the term is often used as a kind of cover to, to talk about managing people's health and information in a way that's, that's offloading a lot of work onto patients who may not have the power or the capacity to do that. I really like that idea of the offloading of work and the creation of new forms of labor for patients. You know, I think that really is the flip side of a lot of the patient empowerment rhetoric. And it comes up in books like uh, Shadow Work, uh, which describes how many things that are supposedly automated are in fact just ways of shifting labor to consumers. And uh, in Nicole Duandre's work, uh, she's a feminist engineer and philosopher at the European Commission who writes a lot about the work of watchdogging. And speaking of watchdogging, I am, wanted to ask you about the care.data situation in the UK and some of the lessons from that scenario. And I was wondering if you could just let our listeners have an overview of some of those events, uh, the efforts to sort of wrangle or to put together health data for good purposes, and then how they seem to have uh, gone wrong. Yeah, we're, we're really managing to cover all of the national embarrassments in one podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, not all. So the way that medical records are organized in the UK is kind of a mess. Technically, we have, since we have sort of one united healthcare system, we should have one of the most you know, well-organised and complete records of a population's health in the world, and it should be this wonderful platform for experimentation and innovation. But in fact, the NHS is split in lots of kind of complicated ways. The data about what you do with your primary healthcare physician is not shared easily with your local hospital. There's certain kinds of information about your hospital stays that are collected and then anonymized and used in all sorts of ways. And there had been attempts to bring everything together. Again, like it's, it's not really worth listing all of the attempts, but lots of kind of attempts to get your hospital record connected up to your GP list. And a lot of these were found to be illegal under data protection laws or weren't adequately protected. So after a lot of rounds of attempts to do that kind of work in-house. There was a big push to create this this overarching care.data plan, which would mean that everyone's healthcare records were wonderfully joined up in one big system. The actual legal and technical details are not even particularly important. Essentially, the information that you got from your primary care physician, information that you about your hospital stays and admittances, information about the illnesses that you had, the treatments that you had, would all be kind of in, in one place and different bits might be accessible by, for research purposes. But what went wrong uh, so many things went wrong. Essentially, it wasn't really communicated to the public what this was at all. Uh, apparently, I have heard tell of wonderful videos and animations that explain how healthcare data can be collected together, um, anonymized and reused for research, and that this could provide all sorts of wonderful new treatments, and that connecting up your healthcare data could mean that you had a, a better care pathway throughout your life, that it would be easier to get information between your GP and your and your consultants at hospital. But, but these were never shown. There was no national TV campaign. There was no advertising campaign. There was nothing apart from a leaflet that went through people's doors. And in a poll about a year afterwards, two thirds of the public don't remember receiving it. Although apparently, you know, the Royal Mail said that they'd hit 99% of households. So you, you end up with a lot of people that think that they haven't been told about this huge new system. And also GPs really resisted it. But one of the reasons that they would resist it is that they were expected to explain what all of this work with data was what a med what an electronic 
health record was to you know patients where they had an average of kind of nine to ten minutes in a appointment there's all of this extra work that they were expected to do all of this extra data entry all of this extra connection between consultants and physicians and test results without really any of the incentives that they might have expected so they ended up pressuring patients to to opt out at the same time there was a clause in there that was very unclear about whether commercial firms might access health data and in what way and from what I've read and heard it, it simply seems like it was sent out unfinished like there, there were meetings that were intended to be had later after the thing had gone live in which they worked out the details of that deal so people were being made to decide whether to opt in or out of the system when they genuinely didn't know who they were potentially sharing information with so obviously a lot of privacy activists then jumped on that and a lot of really scary newspaper headlines went out and there was a kind of a kind of population-wide revolt that really managed to unite us in a way that we have rarely been united before or since. The legal system certainly did not help here, I think would be uh, would be something we might want to agree on. Uh, the, uh, the complexity of English and European law on privacy rights in this space is, is quite considerable. Uh, with the little I know about it, sort of uh, collisions between the NHS constitution and the Bill of Rights. There's a, a 1998 Patient Privacy and Data Protection Act. Then you've got the Information Commissioner's Code of Conduct, which is not binding. And then you've got the sort of the layer of uh, European laws there in that you've both got uh, Brussels and Strasbourg. Although I guess uh, post-Brexit, uh, maybe you won't have to worry about either of those. That wasn't as relevant as the fact that they simply didn't bring the public along with them in any kind of effort of communication. There there seems to have been a hope that they could slide this you know, through the letterbox and it would be ignored and it would be accepted, as opposed to kind of working with people to explain what data could be used for, what knowledge might be gained and what could I mean, they could have had everything locked down and legally perfect, but people that I've spoken to in, in focus groups and in workshops have still kind of revolted against the idea that all of this incredibly sensitive information about them would be collected in one place where hackers might get it. And it was that, there was a mass opt-out, and that and the public backlash was really what undermined any attempt to build this database that could have turned us into this wonderful utopia of experiments and endless optimized healthcare. So yeah, the, there are a lot of competing and overlapping data protection regulations. But the reason I kind of said that almost doesn't matter is that they, they simply didn't bring clinicians or patients along in any kind of public engagement exercise. And that reminds me of some work that I was recently reading uh, in terms of comments to propose changes to the common rule on research using health data in the U.S., and I think one of the commenters was Barbara Evans, a professor at the University of Houston here who does really fascinating work on, on health privacy and uh, research. Um, like Nick, I think, was invited to the, to the White House to discuss precision medicine um, here in the U.S., and I, and, and part of her take, I think, towards the end of her comment was that we need to bring people, give people a sense of ownership and community and mutual reciprocity in a common enterprise of health research 
whose benefits will ultimately redound to all. And I wonder if perhaps, you know, in the U.S., especially now that there's new uh, word of potential lawsuits over Henrietta Lacks's cellular material, in part, you know, driven by a sense that the both her and her descendants did not benefit from the healthcare system and were in many ways cut out from it. I wonder if the European, uh, British, other approaches might have sort of skipped over some of that public engagement because of an assumption that everybody would benefit because it's a more universalistic system. Is there a sense at all of that, of that having been a danger or, or not really? In those focus groups, one of the things I was repeatedly struck by was how people were desperate to help make a better world with their information. If you could explain, and it often took a long time to explain because the understanding of statistics and biomedicine is relatively low. If you could explain how giving information about themselves could help someone else in the long term, they were incredibly willing, like almost scarily willing to give up information. So a lot of them were very aware of how useful genetic data could be uh, because they were very familiar with Angelina Jolie and her you know, efforts to publicize the impact of the BRCA mutation on, on her and her family. And so you know, people who were very, very anxious about having any data put on a computer where a hacker might get it, who claimed that they never used the cloud, although, of course, they shared photos over Facebook, um, whose understanding of the, the technical and, and legal implications of a lot of what they were asking was very low, were very keen in principle to help because they genuinely wanted to help. Um, and they saw the NHS as a public good that would, if it didn't benefit them, it would benefit their kids, it would benefit other people's kids. And that was something that people would keep saying to me, but, you know, for it's for the next generation. I know that I won't see the benefits, but I'm very, very happy to to give something up in order to participate in that. And you know, I've I've seen research on other you know European healthcare systems, and you see a lot of the same kind of thing. Like in I think it was in Denmark, whether you're willing to be kind of a tissue donor. A lot of studies into why there was such a, a people were so happy to kind of donate spare eggs when they were going through in vitro fertilization was because they thought well, I'm getting this service from the state, I should help as many other people as possible while I'm getting this support. So yes, frankly, there's I don't think there's that much of a feeling that people have been deliberately excluded from the healthcare system. And that's one of the reasons it's so frustrating that efforts of public engagement have been relatively weak, because people are so willing, as soon as you can make a case, to help out in whatever way they can. Not wishing to continue with the list of greatest misses, but one issue that uh, clearly has come up in the UK over the last couple of years has been the Google DeepMind project at uh, the Royal Free Hospital. And I say this where my day began reading an announcement from the Anderson Cancer Hospital that it is actually suspending its work with IBM's Watson. And that project looks like it's run into uh, severe difficulties. We, we don't know too much yet. But I wonder if you could just talk us through a little bit of the Google DeepMind Royal Free uh, issue and, and how that relates to, you know, perhaps your uh, conclusion with regard to care data about what appears to be a, a sort of lack of consultation with the subject. Google DeepMind Health made a deal with the Royal Free to uh, access a, a large tranche of data in order to do analysis on it to develop treatment, supposedly around acute kidney injury. And there was there wasn't that much clarity about this. There doesn't seem to be any effort at public consultation. And it was only after a, a um, an investigation by a new scientist that uncovered how enormous the amount of data was. 
five-year tranche of data covering almost every patient that had passed through the Royal Free in that time. And the the consent supposedly was that of implied consent. Uh, so if you had received clinical care for kidney injury, uh, you had implied consent for data about yourself to be used to study kidney injury. But they actually got the data sets for all the other patients as well in order supposedly to be able to monitor you know, healthy patients versus, versus those with kidney injury. But there was no engagement with patients there was a lot of worries about whether implied consent in this kind of case was actually strictly legal. It was certainly very unpopular. There doesn't seem to have been an open procurement process either. And while you know Google DeepMind have had two nature covers in the last year, and they certainly are a leader in lots of the interesting work in AI, other, <laughs> other suppliers do exist. So there was a lot of public outcry about this. And they've, they've since appeared to be trying to tick quite a lot of boxes. They, they've got an ethics board and they ran a kind of patient and public engagement event with a lot of activists on stage and and in the audience and had a lot of questions and answers there but it has left a, a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths they had people on stage saying things like you know if you could save 15,000 lives a year then why are we worried about crossing the i's and dotting the t's and going through this long regulatory process which seems to have things completely backwards i mean you need to prove that you're actually going to save those lives and there's no concerns there about what giving Google access to it, as opposed to anyone else, would mean for care in the future. So if they own this data, do they then own the insights? There's really not been that much in the way of details about what their business plan is going to be. So they they have claimed that the hope is that once they can deliver improvements to services that would save the NHS money, they can then charge for access to those kind of insights and thus the NHS would save money overall. But that's, you know, that's not necessarily exactly what they're going to do and the details are not thrashed out in a way that makes anyone comfortable. So there's a lot of uncertainty and worry there. Yes, and I think one of the other issues that is really troubling in some of these areas is that the regulators who are, say, looking out for traditional medical concepts, those who are looking at privacy, and those who are competition authorities are not consulting one another, and they don't see how the things interlink. And so, for example, you know, a decision to give a particular company carte blanche access to tons of data is not simply a decision about one particular requisition, it sets in motion a certain pattern of consolidation in the industry and in artificial intelligence that research is already quite consolidated. There was a piece in TechCrunch about the degree of concentration. So I, I share all of your concerns, Lydia, and I just wanted to add in that one. I think in terms of you know our, our interview, we're drawing to a close pretty soon. And I know that there, there are tons of interesting things that you and Nest are doing that we have not been able to cover. I was wondering if you might be able to discuss, just in closing, a, a longer-term vision about the rise of self-tracking and integration of consumer and patient data, where you th- see it's going, where you see some of the big speed bumps and trouble uh, ahead, and uh, how we might react to that. Nesta's Health Lab has a vision of a people-powered, knowledge-powered health system, and we've released reports about a kind of positive and optimistic but realistic future for our national health service called NHS 2030, which sets out a kind of vision of a world where people 
people have access to their own data. They are expected and supported to work with that. They're, they can learn skills to care for themselves and their families better. And they are rewarded for, for gaining those skills and for passing them on. And so learning and experimenting is built deeply into the healthcare system and the education system. So we do a lot of that work. The place where I begin to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent is thinking that individual care, so personalised care perhaps, but really individual opt-outs in health data as well as elsewhere in other services are, are really not enough anymore for patients or citizens really to be able to have a seat at the table about how these technologies and insights are being developed and used. So trying to work on ways that people can work together to steer research, potentially by kind of joining together and deciding as collectives whether to opt in or opt out of different research programs. And so be able to have that conversation as a group and one which has real leverage and power, because right now your options are both, you know, whether you're using Facebook or using an electronic health record to either kind of opt in and you know give up a lot of privacy and a lot of certainty about what might happen to your information or opt out and be denied a really vital service. So we're thinking both about the details of the policy of what could be the best way to get people engaged in research and understanding how data works and understanding how they can use that themselves to transform their own care in their communities and also thinking about the wider power network. So we've got a bunch of pro programs that have come out, including uh, particularly, let's say, uh, U-Motif and 100 for Parkinson's, which asked patients, families of people with Parkinson's and the interested public to, to spend 100 days collecting quite a lot of information about their health, their diet, exercise, if they had Parkinson's, their Parkinson's symptoms and, and also kind of, you know, their reaction times after certain kinds of in certain kinds of mini game type things. And that being used to to work out how self-tracking could support people with Parkinson's. Um, and so that was something where people were consciously donating data and donating effort for a health cause. And people were able through that project to learn about what self-tracking might do for them. We've also got a system called Dementia Citizens, which connects up people with dementia and their carers with researchers and allows them to kind of co-produce knowledge and be actively involved in that process. So, you know, they, they'll set up uh, something about, you know, does, does music help calm people with dementia uh, in certain circumstances? And then they'll work through that. They'll be able to connect with the researchers and be an active part of the process of developing that study and seeing that through to completion uh, and seeing how their efforts contribute to the production of knowledge, which then contributes to the improving of care. So we have quite a lot of projects in that kind of vein. And I do have quite some optimism for the future. Uh, the very fact that a lot of these issues have had a lot of national attention in the press has meant that the kind of conversations that I have day to day with people about what I do feel like they've changed materially quite a lot. People already understand that there are issues about personal privacy, but also the common good and how you might have to balance that. And they're able to have quite sophisticated discussions about that. Whereas honestly, a couple of years ago, people barely seemed to care. So just the, the interest in everything from filter bubbles right through to is it morally right for there to be kind of these expensive additional blood tests that mean that we end up with kind of much more data about the health of rich people than we do about poorer people and how might that skew our understanding of medicine. So those those debates are moving on. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Miss Nicholas for joining us. Amazingly, you can find more about her on a website called LydiaNicholas.com and she's active on Twitter where she is at LydNicholas. So that's L-Y-D-N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S. 
This is really interesting work you're doing, Lydia. Can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts with us. Fascinating stuff. It was a delight to be invited. Thank you very much. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.